Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. In June of 2022, we saw the momentous Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Abortion has been a hotly contested issue ever since the Roe decision. But many people don't realize that there is a history of abortion that goes beyond 1973. On this episode of Filter, I'm glad to welcome Leah Savas to discuss this history from her recent book that she co-authored with Marvin Olasky, titled The Story of Abortion in America. Leah Savas reports on abortion for World News Group, where she writes the weekly Vitals Roundup and newsletter of Pro-Life News. She co-authored the book that we're talking about today, The Story of Abortion in America, with Marvin Olasky. Leah lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with her husband, Stephen. Before we get into this conversation, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Also, click on the link in the description to the show notes below so that you can get uh, signed up for our email newsletter so that you can get a notification in your, in your inbox anytime we release a new episode here on Filter. Also, if you've been helped by this episode or by any of our other episodes here on Filter, let me encourage you to leave this show a rating and review or to share it with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take the simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Leah Savas. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you on here. I've been reading you and Marvin's book, um, The Story of Abortion in America, and uh, it, I loved it. It is fascinating, and I think it is an important work that I hope many, many people read. Uh, let's just start. Tell us a little bit about how you met Marvin and got started on this book with him. Yeah, so um, I started working for World News Group in 2019, and um, that was after doing a short internship uh, with World. And then when they offered me a full-time position, they hired me to report specifically on abortion. And at the same time, Marvin asked me if I would help him with this book. So I've been working on and off on this book as pretty much as long as I've been at World. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So you, you don't know world without working on this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. the last couple of years we've been more intently focused on it, but it's been on mm -hmm. my mind at least that long. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad that you pursued that path uh, because the book is excellent uh, and uh, I enjoyed it in the book. Y'all start by talking about how this is looking at the history of abortion in America at the street level versus the sweet level. Uh, I thought this was a, a unique approach, and I'm glad that you took the time to really explain what that meant. So just for our audience, can you explain the way that you guys approach this story at the street level? Yeah. So this is a term that I first learned from Marvin um, when I started with my involvement with World. He would use the term sweet level and street level to explain the difference between what kind of reporting we don't want and what kind of reporting we do want at World. So what we don't want, and there is a place for this every once in a while in certain contexts, but the sweet level would be um, 
high up, think of like a skyscraper, someone high up in a skyscraper in a business suit, um, typing on a computer, you know, someone who, who's at the level of, uh, ideas, um, the, the concepts of things without actually looking down at the realities of what's going on at the street level. So the street level by contrast is, um, the everyday person, what they're experiencing as opposed to what the talking points are from PR firms or major corporations, what is the everyday person experiencing? And we wanted to focus on that in this book, telling the everyday stories of the people affected by abortion. So, yeah. 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 And I think that it's a great approach because one thing that we often assume when we read about uh, any given issue at a, in a particular time or place, sometimes even current, we read often like what are the public intellectuals saying? What are the civic leaders saying? What are the academics saying about this issue? And then we assume that like everyone in the population agrees with them yeah, or is going on with what they're saying. And that's obviously not, not true. And whenever you read this book, you start to see that divide pretty quickly um, just between what different pro-life leaders or pro-abortion leaders were doing. But then how are those ideas affecting the people who were actually experiencing crisis pregnancies, considering abortion or being pressured to go through with an abortion? And so uh, whenever I started the book and grasped that idea and it quickly made sense. It, it really engaged me to um, to read on and see what you guys had in store for us in the book. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one big thing that we focus on is what what do the laws say? What do court rulings say? And how does it compare with what's really happening? So, for instance, maybe it's illegal um, to have an abortion in the 1800s in New York, but still abortions are going on. Who's enforcing those laws or failing to enforce those laws? Uh, mm -hmm. Even looking at the Roe v. Wade decision itself, um, the justices in the Supreme Court who backed that majority opinion in 1973, basically legalizing abortion in the country, what did they say about abortion in America and how does it compare with what was actually going on on the ground? And we can actually see in this book, we point out some of the inconsistencies between that opinion and what was actually happening in American history on the abortion issue. Yeah, just in the first section, uh, there are some really, really effective points made about that specifically, uh, because in uh, Justice Blackmun's uh, majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, he said that and after reading the book, you realize just how historically ignorant this is. He said that abortion was really common and everybody was okay with it in colonial America and early America. And you and Alaska really argue against that assumption in the book and show how really it was very wrong. And so what was the, and I know that this question is covering like three sections of the book. So <laughs> we're, we're really kind of surface level. Uh, but what was the general attitudes toward abortion? Uh, and how common was it in early America? Yeah, so I guess a good way to answer this question would be to look at some of the earliest stories in the book. I think some of those are the most powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so the first the first confirmed and recorded abortion in America was in 1652, which is why we start the book. You know, it says from 1652 to 2022. And that, so that's mm -hmm. why we started in 1652. 
Um, and it's the story of Captain William Mitchell impregnating Susan Warren and then forcing her to take an abortifacient on a poached egg. So in that story, um, Captain Mitchell actually goes on trial for murder. Um, so that story itself is kind of, it, it gets at what Justice Blackman wrote in the Roe v. Wade opinion, where he says, you know, abortion was acceptable um, in early America. Um, but there's actually another story that has some connections to Captain Mitchell's story. Uh, Captain Mitchell did uh, know another man named Francis Brooke, who also impregnated this woman, another woman, um, and then forced an abortifacient on her as well. Um, but in that story, we see that he also went on trial for murder. But this time, we know the age of the baby that died in the abortion, and it was confirmed by one of the witnesses, a midwife um, named Rose Smith, that it was a boy um, around three months old you know, three months gestation. So in the, in the Roe v. Wade opinion, one of the assertions is that abortion was acceptable before quickening, which is roughly five months pregnancy when the woman can start to feel the baby moving inside of her. But here we have a very clear um, example of how this community did not see abortion as acceptable even before quickening. So it's stories like this that we we just recognize that even though they had a limited understanding of, say, fetal anatomy or the science of pregnancy, these people in early America knew that abortion was murder and they treated it like that. Unfortunately, they weren't able to get murder um, kind of verdicts in these cases because there wasn't enough evidence to even prove say that, um, you know, that this was actually what caused the baby's death, you know, wasn't just a miscarriage, uh, but still just based on the reactions of the community and how they, they really disproved of these men who forced these abortions on these women, we can see that it was not acceptable. It was not seen as an okay thing. And even the fact that they they were on trial for murder, even though they didn't get that verdict, the fact that they were on trial shows us something really strong about their opinions of this issue. Yeah, and that was one of the central parts of the debate uh, for uh, at least a, almost a couple of centuries uh, was this idea of quickening. Mm -hmm. And the so the debate was between, because generally everyone agreed that abortion was wrong at some point during yeah. this time it was just at what point is it and sure. this idea of quickening was uh kind of like the dividing line so can you just go into that a little bit more and ex explain what that meant and uh how people debated over that in, uh, in yeah. relation to abortion yeah so the issue the question there is um at what point is abortion no longer acceptable at what point is it killing an unborn human like a, an actual human being and mm -hmm. so in the roe v wade decision like we were talking about the assertion was that before about five months it was acceptable so since the mother at quickening can actually feel the baby moving inside of her that is evidence that she is pregnant in the first place before that it's just hard to confirm um, pregnancy. They didn't have pregnancy tests like we do today. They didn't have ultrasound technology that would allow yeah. us to see what's going on. So before there was actual movement that the mother could sense or that um, 
like uh, maybe even other people could see there there were only things like oh she missed her period stuff like that you couldn't really confirm it so that i think that was a large part of why uh some in some cases they did rely on that concept of quickening to confirm the pregnancy in the first place but we do know from uh just the materials that were available to these early Americans, um, that things they were reading, like this midwives book by this woman named Jane Sharp. She had a really wonky view of, of fetal development, obviously didn't understand the science behind it, but even she believed that, um, even earlier than quickening, you know, I, I think around like six weeks pregnancy that, um, yeah, by then it's definitely a human. So they had this idea though, oh, you know, maybe it starts out like the unborn baby starts out as a plant and then becomes a more of an animal and then is a human, but that was still way earlier than five months or quickening. That was still, very early on in pregnancy. And then by the 1800s, we have doctors saying that, oh yeah, you know, life begins at the moment of fertilization. And that's when I first heard that it was shocking to me. I didn't realize that doctors as early as I think one was even in 1809 was writing things about, um, uh, abortion being murder because he recognized that, uh, it's an individual human being inside of the mother. Um, and then in, in the later in the 1800s, we have Dr. Hugh Hodge, who's speaking, um, in lectures saying that life begins at the moment of fertilization at, at that moment, you have a distinct individual and a second patient that the doctor has to be concerned about and treating. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the quickening argument was partly because they just had a lack of technology. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so their ability to know and confirm when someone was pregnant or not played into it. And so it wasn't until the mother could actually feel a human moving inside of her, what they meant by quickening that they could confirm it. So before that, it was, it was hard to confirm, but then also, and you alluded to this as well, that, uh, it was also based on some ideas, which I, if I remember right, were traced back to Aristotle, right? Yes. That, yes. uh, that the fetus in development doesn't actually become a human until several months into it. Uh, and, and you, you mentioned like, uh, it starts out as like plant spirit and then animal spirit and then human spirit yeah. or something really strange mm-hmm. like that. And so that was a part of what this quickening idea was based off of as yeah. well. But yeah. like you said, it, it's, you see that in the 1600s, 1700s, but then already by the early to mid 1800s, um, their the scientific knowledge had advanced rapidly and you started seeing more and more doctors arguing no this is a human being from conception and mm-hmm. therefore life therefore like you said hugh hodges arguing two patients which the, the story of hugh hodges was one of my favorite chapters a couple of chapters that he was mentioned he was just fascinating yeah yeah i he was one of my favorite characters and uh, just in reading the drafts as we were working on these um, marvin was the one who wrote those chapters about hugh hodge and i was just blown away by like I said earlier, wow, how that's definitely not something that we see in the Roe v. Wade opinion that there were doctors in the 1800s who believed abortion was murder and who knew that life began at conception. In fact, we read the opposite that in the Roe v. Wade decision, they say that there is no consensus Um, and they list different schools of thought where there's no consensus. 
but and so sure, maybe historians didn't agree or maybe lawyers didn't agree, but doctors seem to have a consensus, even as early as the 1800s, that life begins at conception. So mm-hmm. to assert that, obviously, um, in the Roe v. Wade opinion was a failure to recognize the street level reality of what doctors were actually saying in early America. Yeah, it seems as you know, and I heard before this, uh, this is honestly the first time that I ever really read about the Roe v. Wade decision, but i had heard other people state before that, like, look, this is one of the worst decisions ever written, you know? And yeah, it becomes pretty obvious that he was just making some things up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Like it's, and then the, the legal reasoning also was awful, but, but yeah. So anyway, one of the problems that we see uh, another theme running throughout the book is, um, the difficulty between having pro-life legislation or laws that protect life, but then the inconsistency between having those laws on the books and then those laws actually being enforced. Yeah. So, uh, can you share like what's usually the, the, the cause of the disconnect there, um, and give people some examples to help them understand of, of how just having the laws in the books don't always necessarily lead to, uh, their enforcement and saving lives. Yeah. So, um, those cases I provided of men going on trial for murder, but not being convicted, um, under that, uh, that, that's a example or an illustration of why they started passing laws specifically targeting abortion instead of continuing to charge people under, um, give, you know, put murder charges on people for, for those crimes. Um, and we actually know there's the case of this one pastor in Connecticut in, uh, 1820 who went on trial for his part in the abortion of this baby, um, that it was his own child that he, he impregnated one of his, um, congregation members, uh, granddaughters. I think (laughs) he was too familiar with her. Obviously they, uh, they got pregnant and then he pressured her to abort. Um, and they could not, they cannot get a conviction of murder, unfortunately, because of a lack of evidence. So it was actually that case that led to uh, an early Connecticut abortion law in 1821 that specifically prohibited the use of drugs or other um, substances to cause an abortion. Um, so we see a lot of states adopting laws like that moving forward but also a lack of enforcement. So in in the mid-1800s, we have the case of Madame Ristel. So she was in New York City in the mid-1800s and was a prolific abortionist. She performed a lot of abortions. People knew what she did. They knew that was her business. Um, And and abortion was illegal in in New York at that time. But because she had all these relationships with people high up in the community, she was able to pay people off. She had a lot of secrets. She knew of all these unplanned pregnancies who, you know, basically who was coming to her sometimes probably was connected to people in the community who had power. So maybe police officers or politicians. So whenever she needed more money, she would call up some of these people and say, Hey, you know, I know the secret about you. I wouldn't want it to leak out, but, uh, you know, you can prevent that from happening by giving me some more cash. So it's stuff like this where she was 
she had her uh, her hands just in all these different pies in the yeah. community and was able to get away with this booming abortion business. And plus the newspapers were on her side because um, they actually made a lot of money from her ads advertising mm-hmm. her abortion services. So that combination of like police officers, governmental officials, newspapers, all of that being on her side, no one was enforcing the laws. So she did end up in prison a couple different times just because of occasionally people would be like, hey, why are we not taking care of this lady? She is obviously breaking the law. Everyone knows she's breaking the law. So these community pressures sometimes would lead to an arrest, but even her arrest and the newspaper coverage of her time in prison would increase the amount of, uh, I guess, advertising for her, you could say, um, during that time, because she was in all the newspapers and she was making the headlines. So once she got out, she'd be like, hey, I basically, you know, that was that was worth so many advertisements. And now I have more business because more people know about me. Um, So, yeah, it really was a lack of pressure from the group that should have been holding her accountable that led to a lack of enforcement. Yeah. Yeah, it just it reminds me of one of, uh, of a principle that applies to politics, large corporations, and it's just that power leaks. Yeah. And, you know, we often look at the solution to any given problem, whether it's something social or domestic problem, international problem. It's just, well, we need a law put on the books or we need a president to issue an executive order. And to forget that there's like all these layers and layers and layers yeah. of bureaucracies or of committees and whatever else that can like if they each just drop the ball in enforcing that executive order by 2%, well, after all those layers, once it gets down to the street level, it means no enforcement at all. And you see that really vividly in the book. Another thing thing you see really vividly is um, there's several villains in the book. I guess, assuming you're reading this from a pro-life perspective, they're villains. Uh, But there are several villains in the book, men and women, um, who are as wild and colorful as like a movie, a, a character written for a movie villain. One of those is Madame Restel. Mm-hmm. And I think they're interesting because as you read over the course of the book, going from, you know, all the way back with uh, those men, like you mentioned, going back to the 1600s, and then up until today, um, today we have this very sanitized view of abortion and uh, what abortionists are like and do uh but the reality that you guys show is that the these nasty villains that we read about like madame Restel, they haven't changed all that much up yeah. until today it's just that they yeah. have better help from the media uh to mm-hmm. to to sanitize that image so just as an example let's since you already brought her up can, tell us about madame Restel, because yeah. her story once again was just wild her and her husband were basically con men yeah. Uh, that yeah. wasn't even <laughs> Madame Restelle wasn't her real name. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. just the reality of w- what was she like? Yeah. Well, so her real name is Anna Lohman, and her husband worked for a newspaper. And there was actually this story, I think it was of a prostitute who was hatcheted to death. And it, it just made the newspapers uh, make a lot of sales. It was a very popular story because it's very colorful and shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, And around this time, 
he actually encouraged his wife, hey, you should start looking into drugs to cause abortions and figure out like what works and start a business and we'll put ads in the newspaper and you can make money off of this. So that's why she chose the name Madame Ristel because it's French and, you know, it makes it sound kind of seductive and, you know, they know all about these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and so they'd put ads in the newspapers advertising not abortion pills, but actually describing a situation of like a wife who already has lots of kids and is busy and, you know, just having another kid would would just ruin her. So we have these pills to help with this, you know, these drugs. Um, they would even have ads saying things like, oh, you definitely should not be taking these if you are. And then have all these asterisks where, you know, anyone could fill that in and know it says pregnant. Yeah. So, um, so the idea there was to be like, Hey, if you don't want to get pregnant, this is what you should take. Yeah. Uh, they would they also would, use terms. Her or, or others would say things like, uh, their pills for missed periods. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah it would, like I think it was your periods back. Yeah. Stoppage yeah. of the menses to fix yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny, you said the missed periods thing. We talk about that later in the book too, how more recently there has been a push to introduce quote unquote missed period pills. Yeah. Um, but they're the same thing as abortion pills, same dosage and everything. It's just, you don't have to take a pregnancy test beforehand. So you won't know if you actually did kill your baby or not. So anyway, mm -hmm. so history repeats itself, but, um, but yeah, so Madame Ristel or Anna Loman, she, uh, she was very rich. Uh, you know, it describes her having a very nice home and furs and, you know, all the, all the things that would kind of be a flashy, uh, show off in the 1800s in New York city. Mm -hmm. Uh, so not necessarily what we think of today, but at the time it was just calling out to people like, Hey, look, she's a reputable person. She's rich. She's like tidy. She's got all these connections. I think it was I think it was the mayor um, conducted her daughter's wedding. Uh, so she has these political connections, these political ties. Um, and even when she was in prison, she had enough connections to allow her to have her own feather mattress. And her husband yeah. was allowed to come visit her as long as they wanted. Um, so it was a really cushy prison sentence. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's she made lots of money off of the abortion procedures that she was involved in and was able to, she was good enough at it that not many women died in the process. So, um, and it was usually when a woman would die in an abortion that you would get all this negative press coverage. So the fact that she was able to avoid that just confirmed, oh, she does have a good reputation. Only the baby dies. The woman doesn't die. She's helping all these women. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting. It, it's kind of similar to what we see today, I think, too. Like, oh, like you're helping the community. Thank you so much to abortionists because um, they're seen as helping women who are in difficult situations. Yeah. Yeah. There's Madame Restelle and uh, a few others in the book that are really, really interesting cases to read about of, uh, yeah, these, these people who profit off of... Uh, who have profited off of abortion and um, yeah, they make for some really interesting reads. Um, yeah. As you read over the course of this history, one of the things that you see is that one of the most powerful 
uh, pro-life tools has always been the use of images, specifically images of uh, the unborn person and through the various stages of development so people can see that this is a human being from conception. Because just hearing the medical arguments without the pictures uh, usually doesn't really connect for people until they get to see it with their own mm -hmm. eyes. So can you take us through that history of the use of images and just how important it has been in advancing uh, the, the pro-life uh, positions yeah. among the population? Yeah. So one of the earlier stories from the book that comes to my mind is um, from the 1930s, actually. It was a pro-abortion doctor who encouraged the um, there is this pregnancy association booth at the World's Fair in mm -hmm. 1939. And even though he was pro-abortion, he encouraged them to put on display these uh, sculptures of a baby developing inside of its mother. Yeah. And there were like thousands of people coming to look at these sculptures and just astounded, like, wow, look at that. Like, look at that baby developing. And the Gerber baby products company was handing out flyers, uh, basically saying, don't get an abortion. So in, in conjunction with, with this really astounding image that people um, are looking at of these sculptures, they're hearing the reality of like what abortion does, but it becomes more real when you actually can see it. So, and that's especially true in later in the 1900s, uh, starting around in the 1950s, there's some progress um, to develop ultrasound technology. So there's a, a doctor, Dr. Ian Donald, um, who he was actually not he was not setting out to start using ultrasound technology to see an unborn baby. Originally, his goal was to help solve respiratory issues in mm, infants. Yeah. Um, but he had some experience in the war and through that just got interested in that ultrasound technology and started finding ways to apply it in obstetrics. Um, and eventually he published, he and some other doctors published the first article that had a lot of images, ultrasound images of unborn babies. So that was really groundbreaking work. And eventually he was like doing lectures, showing ultrasound footage and explaining to people, look, you can see the baby jumping and moving in the womb. And this is even before the mother knows she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and so his, his actual assessment of his own history, his own involvement on this topic was that he had basically abolished and gotten rid of the idea that an unborn baby is just a, I think he said, uh, a meaningless mass of jelly or something like that, basically a clump of cells. Yeah. He's saying that through ultrasound technology, he was able to help dispel that. Um, and and pro-life pregnancy centers starting as early as the 1980s, were using this technology at their centers to help show women what's going on inside of them yeah. and to show them, hey, this is a person inside of you. Killing this person is not okay. Abortion is not okay. Um, I got to interview the first director of a medical pregnancy center. Um, it, the first medical pregnancy center that opened was in California in the 1980s and Dr. Gita Swamidas was the director mm -hmm. of that center. Um, 
And she knew going into it that this was going to be kind of groundbreaking because they were the first center to have ultrasound technology. And then she told me all these stories of women who would come to her with a crisis pregnancy. For instance, one woman came to her from a local church saying, hey, I'm a youth group leader here. I feel like I really just have to get an abortion. You know, she was just wanting a reason, like a biblical reason why she could get an abortion. But instead, uh, Gita Swamidas told her like, hey, let me show you what's going on inside of you. She like got out the ultrasound and showed her the baby inside of her and told her at the same time that it's a sin to kill this baby, no matter what the reason is or why, why you conceived or how you conceived this baby. So that powerful image in conjunction with the truth about what abortion is and what the Lord has to say in scripture about murder is so powerful. You know, it just gives an extra level of um, conviction to the topic and allows pro-lifers to be able to explain and demonstrate what they're trying to say when they say abortion is killing. Yeah. Yeah, that story, I wish I could remember his name, of that abortionist doctor who made the models. uh, Yes, Robert Dickinson. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was just (laughs) amazing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So ironic, because he wasn't just someone who was like open to pro-choice. If I remember right, he was very much for abortion and uh, argued for how good it is and supported it and was Mm -hmm. lobbying for it. And yeah, and then he had this idea that just completely backfired on everything that he stood for (laughs) and like just uh, opened so many people's minds to what is happening inside the womb. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that story was incredible. And yeah, ultrasound has been so powerful even for... I remember reading stories in the book about how even for uh, women who go into these crisis pregnancy centers very early, whenever the ultrasound, you know, isn't showing an image that's like super discernible as a person yet, uh, Mm -hmm. but there's a heartbeat just by the fact that like it started to show in, uh, you know, mothers and fathers, a heartbeat and get to hear Mm -hmm. that heartbeat and how just that has been so powerful in changing minds and hearts. You know, I, yeah. I, I remember uh, my wife and I uh, never considered an abortion. We, we've uh, always been pro-life uh, for as long as we know each other. Uh, but, you know, I remember just as a, as a father hearing my child's heartbeat for the first time and how your world changes in that instant. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and so this ultrasound technology has been so powerful, uh, really was, you know, a work of God in saving lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another one that's more recent and a lot of people probably remember would be the videos that were uh, released by the center for medical progress. Yeah. These undercover videos that they made going in uh, or or talking to Planned Parenthood officials. Can you remind everybody of that story and what it meant for the pro-life movement? Yeah. So David Delighton is the primary pro-lifer who went undercover at uh, basically like conventions uh, for groups like Planned Parenthood and um, these like medical companies that apparently actually purchase uh, the tissue, the the body parts of aborted babies. Mm -hmm. So he was able to um, talk with some of the higher ups at these conventions and get them on video describing how they perform abortions or how they train their abortionists to perform abortions to ensure that they get 
uh, intact and uh, body parts that are in good condition, basically, for whatever use the company purchasing them um, wants to use them for. So uh, he released those videos and I believe, oh, wow, was that in like 2014, I think? Because I remember when they came out, I remember where I was when I kind of saw them for the first time, but um, he ended up being raided by law enforcement and they they took his computers, his hard drives, his videos, and yeah. now he he's faced multiple charges for for taking these videos undercover, um, and it's ongoing. Like he's still in court, and mm. it's been you know almost ten years, maybe ten years. If it was twenty thirteen, I'm trying yeah, to remember. Yeah, I think it was two thousand thirteen. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so he he's still dealing with kind of the aftermath of all of that. But that exposure of the abortion industry was helpful for some people. And I write about one of the um, people who is really impacted by those um, videos. Her name's Teresa Bukovinak. She's actually an atheist, um, but she's pro-life. And one of the big things that kind of moved her into pro-life work was recognizing um, that, there's this industry making money off of dead babies, basically. So seeing these videos fueled her activism in a lot of ways um, and just got her to be involved on a more humanitarian level, recognizing like, Hey, human rights, like we should all, we should all be defending the rights of the most vulnerable. Um, But yeah, it it is really interesting seeing those videos come out and, um, and the reaction from the pro-abortion industry, how obviously he got something big there because they, they're, they're fighting hard against him to keep him from releasing more of the videos, which apparently he has more wow. that uh, he has not been able to share yet. So wow. maybe someday we'll see them. Yeah. Yeah. And that story is so wild for many different reasons. Not just it, it, it's crazy because first and foremost, what he revealed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's unthinkable what they've been doing. And do we have evidence or know that they're, that this is still going on or, um, um, yeah, I guess that that's a good question. I haven't looked into it super recently. I know that there is this one, um, I think it was a district attorney in California who recently testified though recently as in probably probably a year ago by now <laughs> though that he was able to use some of the evidence that David Delighton uncovered to uh basically get after these companies. So people have used this evidence um to uh enforce laws against companies that are participating mm. in this trade. So as far as I understand it, it is going on. I just haven't, I don't have any recent details on that. So yeah. 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 yeah so it, it's wild for what he revealed was happening. Uh, but then also f- for the fact that, uh, that all of the governmental agencies and the, the mechanisms of justice mm-hmm. turned against him instead yeah. of turning against Planned Parenthood and these companies who were, buying the tissue of aborted children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is interesting. And th- the legal, his legal defense, David Delighton's legal defense, they've made some arguments about, um, I guess, conspiracy or collusion. I guess I don't know the technical word between um, 
Kamala Harris, who at the time was the attorney general of California, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and and Planned Parenthood. They they have some evidence that they say suggests that she was in on all of this and uh, encouraged the raid of his apartment. So, you know, whether that's um, proven in court, I guess we'll have to see as these play out. But um, they do point to some exchanges that suggest that um, the government, the governing officials were in on what was going on and that Planned Parenthood was encouraging them to make these uh, raids um, to abscond or, you know, take back the videos to prevent them from being released. So, yeah. yeah and you see this uh, going back to the story of Madame Restell that you already shared about, but then especially in more recent decades, um, this, these powerful connections between the abortion industry and then uh, political parties and candidates, uh, but then also the press and media. You show how in, uh, in the last eight years or so, especially going back to 2016, abortion activism has really, really intensified. And one of the main reasons is because of this partnership between the abortion industry and the press always giving them positive coverage, always bearing mm-hmm. stories that would be negative towards them, uh, and then also relying on the media, movies, Hollywood, TV shows, yeah. to push pro-abortion narratives. Can you explain that partnership and how it's been so powerful for the pro-abortion narratives? Yeah, so there's actually a Planned Parenthood staff member whose job is specifically to form relationships with people in the media. So like with directors, actors, producers, um, you know, specifically Hollywood, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's the uh, University of San Francisco, I I think, will release annual reports kind of analyzing abortion-related film or TV uh, depictions. over the last year. So I think their first one was in 2016 of just looking at all of these TV shows and movies that had come out and analyzing, okay, is this a positive depiction of, of abortion? Is it not positive? Does it show anyone saying, oh, you shouldn't get an abortion for this reason? Um, and then they'll, they'll pretty much critique all the different films or praise them based on uh, how well or how positively they depict abortion. So actually in one of the reports, or is either in one of the reports or in a um, interview that one of the researchers gave um, related to the reports, they talked about how they saw a lot of uh, cultural change on the issue of like, LGBTQ matters, um, gay marriage, things like that. And they say, you know, we saw a lot of cultural movement in that way and how TV shows and films helped shift people on this topic and show them, oh, you know, it's actually okay. It's an okay thing to be gay or to be transgender. Um, And they're like, if they could do it with that, we can do it with abortion too. So it's clearly their goal. They've stated it's their goal to change people's minds about the abortion issue using films. Um, so one of the big breakthroughs for this Holly, uh, this, yeah, I guess Hollywood, Hollywood liaison from Planned Parenthood, her name's Karen Spruch. Um, one of the big break the breakthroughs was this movie called obvious child. And it was, it's basically a comedy about this woman getting pregnant and she doesn't want to 
she doesn't have a baby so she gets an abortion and she's totally okay with it it doesn't bother her at all she doesn't have like a a crisis moment it's all just really casual Mm -hmm. and and this hollywood liaison from planned parenthood just talked about how wow that was really a breakthrough for us i was so proud of that finally we had a movie where there's really uh um no second thoughts about getting an abortion and that's how basically they want culture to see the abortion issue as just like oh you know it's kind of like oh i guess i'll cut my hair you know i guess i'll get an abortion that sort of thing so yeah and then also the relationship between the abortion industry and the press yeah Uh, how the press buries uh all any story and there's many out there uh that shed negative light or contradict the pro-abortion narratives um, and are always covering and giving good media co- uh, coverage, once again, uh, to the uh, pro-abortion industry and Planned Parenthood. Can you give some examples of how the press and the abortion industry are really working together in this? Yeah, so, well, I guess one that comes to mind, and people dispute what exactly was going on in this, so it's not clear if people were intentionally ignoring it or... Um, if people just didn't hear about it. But the case of Kermit Gosnell is Mm. one that comes to mind as one that did not get the media coverage that a lot of people expected it to get. So I spoke with one of the local reporters who covered that case of Kermit Gosnell. So in case people don't know, he was a Philadelphia abortionist who was found to actually have killed babies after they were born by snipping their necks with scissors. And also women would die at his abortion facility just because he had such, um, he had ill-trained staff members basically who would overdose these women on anesthesia. anesthesia. So, um, so that, you know, there are all these sensational details. This reporter I talked to, he was like, yeah, when I heard about this case, I expected the courtroom to be packed. I even, you know, went and talked with them to make sure I could ensure that I got a seat because I was sure that there would be so many reporters and other people from the community there. But he got there and it was mostly empty. He's like, what's going on? You know, I would have thought this would be like national news because it was a prime example of a state not enforcing its own laws on abortion. So not only was Kermit Gosnell performing illegal abortions, he also had just terrible conditions at his facility. Um, He wasn't meeting the health and safety codes, even though people had filed complaints about his facility, nobody had inspected it for so long. Um, No one from the state has inspected it. So, so yeah, so this guy I talked to, he's like, Basically, he described himself as being pro-abortion, uh, and, although he probably would he would have said pro-choice. Um, but he still covered it because he thought that it was such an important important topic, and was surprised that national media did not. Eventually, some some people found out about it. Some uh, reporters and news anchors found out about it and they would mention it. One uh, op-ed writer basically called everyone out for not covering it. Uh, You know, why isn't this 
why isn't this in the New York Times or, you know, why isn't this front page news? And so some of the national outlets did come out for a little bit and they would, you know, they'd stay for a little while. But then there was like the Boston Marathon bombing and a lot of those national reporters then left to cover that. Uh, So this reporter, this local reporter said basically... Sure, there was a point in time where there were a few more reporters in in the courtroom, but it was mostly mostly him and just a couple yeah. other local people the whole time. Um, and that's a good example of a, a story that abortion pro abortion groups would not want to get out there because in some ways it would show that there are unlawful things happening at abortion facilities. It would maybe increase scrutiny against other abortion facilities increase like the inspections or the laws regulating those abortion facilities. Um, but you would also think in some ways, and maybe I, I think I did hear this from some pro-abortion people, how we also, they, some people would say that they, even though they support abortion, they do want, uh, abortion facilities like Kermit Gosnell's to close down because it, it gives a really bad image to the abortion industry. And that's because people tend to pay attention to uh, the stories that are more sensational where Mm. women die, where there's brutal killings. Um, And that just reminds us of earlier on in the book, um, just how unless a woman died, often there was no coverage of an abortion in the news. Um, So yeah, it's a really interesting pattern that, just has continued throughout the centuries. Yeah, that's definitely a pattern that that, that goes back. You're right, and and how um, the the press would most often cover the stories that were the most sensational that involved the death of a mother, especially. Uh, Marvin would always point out how they would emphasize the beauty of the yes. young mother. You know, it, so it had to be like a young mother who died, and she had to be beautiful. Uh, to mm-hmm. and have a tragic story for them to really want to be able to cover it, but still, it seems like what's happening more recently is is even bigger of a intentional lack of coverage or burying. Yeah, that's happening yeah. in the media. Because um, yeah, you, the, the Kermit Gosnell case, I remember whenever it came out and being horrified. We didn't even know all the details yet, and then just not hearing anything after that. Sure. And you're you're right, and that that local reporter was right. Is that in that it had all of the elements of a sensational story that should have gone national. Um, mm-hmm. The the details just read as if they're out of a horror movie. Yeah, you know, Gosnell legitimately sounds like he was a sociopath. Um, yeah. and yet because it didn't fit the narrative, they I, I think that you know there are powerful people who want to stay local. Yeah. Yeah. More recently in this big story, you know, I, I, we should cover this before we uh, before we run out of time, is that uh, this past year in the Dobbs Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court finally, after years of pro-life work and efforts and hopes and prayers, they overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, just briefly, can you explain what the Dobbs case was about and why it led to Roe v. Wade being overturned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, that's the full name of the case, uh, it was a case involving a Mississippi law that protected babies from abortion after 15 weeks. So uh, pro-abortion groups in the state of Mississippi filed a lawsuit to challenge this law, 
And eventually it made its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And the questions that the Mississippi Attorney General posed, uh, essentially, the questions that she originally posed seemed like they would just be kind of picking at the Roe v. Wade precedent saying like, um, is it really un- is it really wrong for a state to protect babies before viability? You know, can't, can't states pass some pre-viability abortion bans? And viability is roughly 24 weeks when a baby can survive outside of the womb in a lot of cases. Um, so they asked that question and the Supreme Court agreed to hear uh, the case kind of to consider that question. But then as as all the briefs were being filed leading up to the actual or- oral arguments, the Mississippi Attorney General's office straight out said Roe should be overturned. Mm. Um, so they made that assertion. They they kind of teed it up for the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe with this case if they really wanted to. Um, but I think a lot of people going into the oral arguments and even after thought that it was most likely that the U.S. Supreme Court would just allow Mississippi's 15-week law to stand, so allow pre-viability abortion bans, but they didn't think that it would mean a total overturning of Roe v. Wade. So then when yeah. the leaked draft came out in May, um, some and they still have not solved this case. They don't know who leaked the draft, yeah. um, but someone leaked a draft of the majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito. And uh, that was pretty much with some minor changes and some additions. um, It was pretty much word for word what the final majority opinion actually said, which was that uh, Roe was egregiously wrong. And so they overturned the Roe v. Wade decision and allowed states to take up the matter of abortion and legislate on abortion as they desired, which was the exact opposite of what Roe v. Wade did. Roe v. Wade basically said states can't restrict abortion unless and like they gave some rules for where you could. And but basically it wiped out pro-life laws in the country um, in 1973. So now with the Dobbs decision, states are able to pass laws actually protecting unborn life. um, And many states have laws prohibiting abortion from the moment of conception. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I guess about a year ago, this time uh, last spring, listening to the different podcasts and, uh, you know, whatnot that I listen to and follow. And I don't remember anyone optimistic that this was actually going to overturn <laughs> Roe. You yes. know, no one thought that they're all, oh, like, yeah, yeah. hopefully this will just lead to some incremental change. Yes. And then that opinion leaked and yeah, it just blew everything up. And yeah, I mean, wow. You know, praise God for it. Um, it's just, yeah. Amazing. It's, it's the, it's the, long awaited hope that so many people have been praying for and uh, so many heroes who uh, that had dedicated their lives and didn't get to see uh, the fruit of what they had dedicated their lives to come to pass. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I just think we're so privileged to be able to see uh, that who, to have gotten to live through that moment, you know, and now yeah. having the privilege of carrying on the fight um, because the Dobbs decision didn't uh, completely get rid of the supply of abortion. You know, the, the mm-hmm. movement now just changes going state by state level and there's still a lot of work to be done. And as uh, Marvin concludes in the epilogue to the book, while the decision does limit 
the amount of supply that was there, there's still a lot of work to be done dealing on, with the demand side because mm -hmm. as you guys show throughout the, this street level history, uh, laws don't always translate to, uh, you know, on the ground changes. And so, you know, we're running out of time just before we go, what are some of your thoughts about based off of your work in this book and reflecting on the conflict over the centuries and the, successes of the pro-life movement. What are your thoughts for what it means going forward now? Yeah. So I think some big things, uh, and one thing I guess we didn't talk about too much, but just the influence of an understanding of scripture and what that has to do with the abortion issue early on in these early cases of abortion in America, they did not have a strong understanding of fetal anatomy or like the science of pregnancy, but they knew what scripture had to say. And that was largely what was informing their understanding of abortion being wrong. Mm. Fast forward to today. And we have a lot of people who know what's going on in a pregnancy. They, uh, they understand, um, because they've seen ultrasound images, things like that. Obviously there are probably some people who don't understand this, but I think many people understand that it is a tiny human developing. Um, they would argue whether or not that person should be considered or that human should be considered a person. Um, but even though they have this strong knowledge of science, they don't have a knowledge of what scripture has to say. Uh, so I would say moving forward, I think that's a very important thing to emphasize is what scripture has to say. We have to be bringing the gospel into these conversations on the abortion topic. Um, the pro-life movement today likes to focus on the science and kind of the natural philosophy and uh, logic and reasoning, but I don't think we can leave God's word out of it. Um, and I think we see that in a lot of these stories of what influence God's word did have on people's understanding of what abortion does. So that would be a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And one thing that the book shows throughout the centuries as medical knowledge has advanced and political battles have gone back and forth. One thing that seems to always be a constant is that, uh, the dividing, the true dividing line isn't between those who get the science and those who don't, but those who, um, who are convicted by God's word and what yeah. it says. So I think you're absolutely right. Well, once again, the book is called The Story of Abortion in America. Uh, as I said before, it is a fascinating book, and I am so thankful that uh, it has been written by Marvin Alasky and Leah. Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the show today. Uh, I hope that everybody goes and gets a copy of the book and follows your work at World Magazine, and I appreciate you being here on Filter. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.